thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for your word and grateful for Paul's power in the letter to the Galatians. We'd ask that we would sit up and take notice and our, our hearts would start pumping again regarding what the faith is. In your son's name, amen. It says at the top of your sermon notes that it's November 3rd. This is All Souls Christian Church. All Souls Day was yesterday. So this is kind of our week. Dibs, I think we call it. Um, as you know, we are not a liturgically driven or church calendar driven type of church, but we like goofing off with it. So things like Halloween, All Souls Day. All Saints Day is the first, hence All Hallows Eve, Halloween, the day before. You've just been running through a, you know, a minefield of church calendar stuff. Um, and again, I have a promise from Chloe, she's going to be up here next week. There's a few other people who go, ah, but when they see a small child, <laughs> suffer the little children to come unto me, and the little child sitting up there because you were too scared, you'll be up there. Then you're going to be pleading to get up there. And you don't have to sit up there during the sermon, because that one time I ripped my pants, uh, we're just not going to test that out. And whoever is checking out this sermon online is going to wonder what we're dealing with here as a church. We're still in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians does naturally break into those chapters, sermon length things. We have to go a little into four to, today to, to uh, stay with the topic, uh, the first seven verses of chapter four. And, and Paul has been pretty straightforward with the Galatians thus far. You know, in chapter one, I am astonished you were so quickly deserting him. Seems strong, strong worded. Then he gets into a fight with St. Peter in chapter two. Paul seems to be a little on edge on this topic. And then in chapter 3, he starts out, Oh, foolish Galatians, you idiots. You know, it's not nice to call people stupid. It's really not nice. We would, we would worry about someone who is always calling people stupid. We would say either they have a loose view of their responsibility to other people and they don't understand the value of the other people, or they have this overvaluation of the thing they're considering the stupidity in light of. You know, in other words, uh, um, uh, someone fails to hand you the right wrench, you're working on a car and you ask for a you know, 3 sixteenths and they hand you a 5 sixteenths. Uh, you're so stupid. Well, you say, ah, should you be that mean regarding something so inordinately small or small? But you already know from this book that St. Paul says that if anyone holds a gospel other than that which I have preached, let them be damned. 
That's where you get to say, as a Christian, legitimately damn them all to hell, is in relationship to this topic. So when Paul gets a little bit worked up in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? He drags them back in their folly and sets in front of them the Christian gospel again. Wasn't it? He, they had not witnessed Jesus Christ dying. They were not in Palestine at the time. This is a number of years later. This is Galatia. This is Central Asia Minor. These are a bunch of pagans who had become Christians. And they become Christians because Paul and others had undoubtedly preached Jesus Christ crucified. You know that passage where it says, I profess to know nothing but Christ and him crucified? That's what we present as the gospel. Jesus Christ died for sinners. Now what do we hope to get out of that when, when, when we preach Jesus Christ has died for sinners? Is it, is it something that just because it has happened, you know, approximately 30 AD, some Jew who claimed to be God got killed by people? And he claimed that it was for sin. What's, what now? Well, the reason it is preached to the Galatians is not because well, it doesn't need to be preached if it just is effective, right? If you just were walking down the street and, you know, what would it be? It would be, uh, well, near Easter in uh, 30 AD. You're walking down the street around Easter, Pentecost, or or uh, Passover, actually. And all of a sudden, you feel suddenly strange, lighter in the step. Because over on the other side of the city, Jesus Christ was crucified for sin. No, you didn't. You didn't feel anything. The world went through this vortex of change, and you felt nothing. Now, why did you feel nothing? Let me ask you only this, verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Because there's a response necessary to Christ and Him crucified. That's why it was preached. We portray Jesus Christ as crucified to you Galatians because the second half of that deal, the faith of the individual, the pursuit of man for God, has to happen. God does a lot of things for you. We covered this in Peter during the week. Uh, God does a lot of things for you. You've got to hitch up your parents and walk into the presence of God and believe. But you've got to concern yourself with your belief. That's why James talks about faith without works being dead faith. That's why faith is such a topic. It's just belief. But how many of you can look inside yourself at your belief and go, is it enough? Do I believe enough? And this phenomena we call Christianity, we, we come to church not because we're, we're just naturally religious people, but because the, the, the core of this church are people who have passed from death to life out of their faith at the Son of God. We receive the Spirit by hearing with faith. 
Now you have to have that clear in your mind. Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified, and you, the pagan, believed it. And that's where Paul wants you held, because in his topic today is not the gospel per se, but how does the gospel get lived by Christians? Because these foolish Galatians were being led astray to a different gospel, one that said it is not by faith anymore. It's not about whether or not you get saved by works. That's not what people were saying to the Galatians. This is about, to use Bible theology terms, sanctification. These were people that said, well, yeah, of course you believe in Jesus Christ and are so saved, but really you have to go back to the law to find out how to live. How to live as a Christian. Keep the Ten Commandments. And he asks you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by faith or by law? And the answer for you as a Christian ought to be by faith. Pastor, are you so foolish? His next question. Having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? That is one of the most odd remarks. Someone comes to you and says, you know, I don't go to that church because it's just so filled with fleshly sinners. And your picture in your mind is, you know, women in short skirts and freedom to drink and things like that, or dancing, modern dance. That's what you think, the flesh, right? That's when someone says they are caught up in fleshly indulgence. Well, you think, you know, sex and hunger and you know, ibuprofen, things like that, drugs. You, you don't think legalistic church, but Paul does. He says, if you're trying to get righteousness by works of the law, if you're continuing your Christian life by works of the law, you are of the flesh. Because the things of the Spirit, you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith. You didn't receive the Spirit by keeping the law. Are you so foolish? Since you got Jesus Christ, you were changed. Wherever you became a Christian, some summer camp or the witness of a friend or a family member, you came to belief in Jesus Christ. It was just your faith. And Paul wants you to know that if you began that way, why would you be going looking around for some other way to run it? This is not, Christianity is not Judaism with a kind of a makeover. You are not administrating Judaism through Christian eyes. That's exactly what these people were telling the Gentiles in Galatia, and Paul was going ballistic over. Did you experience so many things in vain? Some translations said suffer so many things in vain. If it really is in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is one of the most basic questions in Christianity today, and Christians are as basically confused about it as they were 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote the letter. 
You have to stop your life at some point and say, okay, what is the Christian life ethically supposed to be about? How do I approach the law? I still get people walking up to me and go, okay, what do you do with the Ten Commandments? This week, I had someone come up to me and say, okay, what do you do with the Ten Commandments? The question is really, do you have any idea what Christianity is about? Christianity isn't about having the kind of slacker view of morality that the pastor gets to go to Halloween parties and Marine Corps balls and nobody even makes a peep. We didn't dance at the Marine Corps ball. It's not that uh, you have a church in which the pastor doesn't wear a tie. It's not that there's a kind of a looseness about everything because we are looking for the righteousness of God. We're not looking for no righteousness. No righteousness is pretty easy. If you want the church of no righteousness, it's down the street of John's Alley. I mean, they got a service every weeknight. You can appeal to the flesh, that kind of fleshly appeal, all you want. But we here at this church are appealing to the righteousness of God. We want the things of God in our life, and we have a confusion, like the Galatians did, about the role of the law of the Jews in the Christian life. And this next portion, he argues that point. Thus Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now I have these number of quotes, single phrase quotes, out of the Old Testament, out of Genesis, a couple, one of Deuteronomy, Habakkuk, um, that he just throws in there at the Galatians. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So you see, St. Paul didn't write it in red, I made it in red. So you see that it is men of faith who are sons of Abraham. He's asked the question, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Because he wants to know who is leaving, leading, leading the life that is pleasing to God. And he throws this Abraham thing and says, by faith, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So the real descendants of Abraham are people who are into faith, not into law. The law didn't exist at the time of Abraham, the, the Mosaic law. Abraham's at about 1850, early 1800s BC. Moses is 14, mid-1400s BC, so 400-year difference. Before the law, and he's telling people who have had Judaizers come from Jerusalem who tell them, no, as a Christian, you've got to keep the law of Moses to be a good Christian. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Let's look back and see what the reality about Abraham is. The reality of Abraham is that his righteousness was based on faith. So you're really a descendant from Abraham if you have Abraham's spirit, Abraham's trust, Abraham's approach to righteousness. 
And the scripture, verse 8, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The word nations is the word Gentiles. All the Gentiles be blessed. So then, those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. So not only was righteousness established at the very beginning, that Jew who is the first of Jews, Abraham is the father of Judaism, he is the first one. There is a line of descent that went down to the law, the political line, the ceremonial line, whatever you want to call it. And there was the spirit line, which said, Abraham, from the very beginning, believed God. And God credited him with righteousness because of it. And he even promised that all the nations would be blessed in him. And you Gentiles in Galatia are blessed in him because you share that faith. Not because you ran over to Moses and shared the Mosaic law. For all who rely... It gets a little clear. If you, if you don't like clarity, um, don't continue to pay attention to the, the windows or something. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is one of the problems you have when you suggest to people that they obey a portion of the law. What's the nature of law? If it is a true law, in other words, has authority over you, you don't get to pick which parts of it you obey. If you say the laws of the state of Idaho are sacred, you have to obey them, and every item singly, severally, you have to obey. But except for the one about me paying tax on my internet purchases. As soon as a person makes an exception for themselves, you know who's really in charge. They are really in charge. But the nature of the law of God and the Jews is you can't and every church I've ever been in has done this. Take which portions they want to keep. Oh, yeah, of course, we don't do the one about the mixing the fabrics. Or you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Or how you treat mildew on the wall of your house. We don't stone people for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Certainly not, but the Ten Commandments, sir, hold it. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If the law has authority, it has authority. Paul has said in another place, um, if you violate a portion of the law, you violate the whole law. You can't give it, people who give it authority and say, oh, just take hey, just part of it. Just the food laws, or just the ones we want to keep, or the ones we want to feel kind of, you know, part of the Jewish thing. Our religion is part of God's treatment of man and God's treatment of man, the great mystery of the Christian faith. We learned this in Ephesians a few months ago, is the, the election of all men through faith. That the Gentiles becoming part of God, even though they were not part of the elect people. They became elect through faith. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law. Again, the word you have to remember, the word justified just means made righteous. 
We don't, when we put the word justified there, you start doing some things in your mind legally. You start saying, okay, no, made righteous. Righteousness is the end that God is looking for. He wants men and women to be good. The law was not doing it. No man is made righteous before God by the law, for he who through faith is righteous shall live. That's a quote out of Habakkuk. He who through faith is righteous shall live. But the law does not rest on faith, for he who does them shall live by them. Now one of the things you're looking for is, how do I not get into the problem of the Galatians, where I don't go in by faith, live by works. Okay, that was the problem. In by faith, live by keeping the law. You've got to strengthen your understanding of what faith is, or what faith does. Your belief brings about righteousness, and you live in that righteousness. If your faith is that kind of lazy person, yeah, I threw the stick in the fire at camp, and you know, so I get to do what I want? Yeah, you get to do what you want. What do you want to do? Well, the person who believes, the person who believes wants the righteousness of God. They are the righteousness of God. They want that. It's not like I threw the stick in the fire at camp and, you know, walked the aisle, signed the card at a campus crusade meeting. I don't want to be good. That's really not, well, that's a big question about your faith right then. So people, when they have churches filled with people who aren't really saved, but who walked the aisle, who signed the card, they say, well, how do we fix this? Well, instead of getting them really saved, we give them really big rules. Here's the list of rules. We've got to get people to obey the right thing because the law is based on your doing it. He who does them shall live by them. Now, if you've been around here long enough and you've been accosted by my father on the street, um, at some point in his conversation with you, he's going to bring up the subject of are you being or doing? Are you being a Christian? Because you've passed from death to life. You have a belief, a faith in the Son of God. When you read something in the Word of God, you believe it is so, because you have faith. You don't believe you're in charge of your life. You know you're an idiot. You know you couldn't be trusted with, you know, the life of anyone, let alone your own. And you have bowed the knee to the Father through Christ. That's where you are. You're a new creature. I don't have to think about making people behave. I just find out who they are by how they behave. I don't want to try to turn the church into a behaviorally modified group of people that reflect a certain view of, of Christian propriety. Let you know what the rules are. What are the rules here? I have to sit up front once a month. That's it. We don't have them. We're tempted. Everybody's always tempted to make a rule. We as parents especially. You have to as parents. But parents are not running a church in their home. They're running a family. 
And a small child is, needs to have someone else rule their life. But when you've been changed by Jesus Christ, you don't need the church to run your life. Hopefully you're coming, wherever you're going to church, you're coming and bringing your changed life to benefit the souls of the other changed people here. Christ redeemed us, verse 13, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. That in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It's all going back to whether or not you believe. Unto salvation, one. Unto righteousness, two. That was what Christ was all about. He lived this perfect life. He lived the righteous life, setting an example for us. He gave us a redemption from how you ever want to picture the substitutionary work of Christ for you. Ransomed or substitute or forensic justification or whatever. Whatever words you want to use. Jesus Christ stood in your stead for sin. He took the curse so that you wouldn't have to be under that curse. The law is a curse. Now he wants to remember, these are people that have been hearing it whispered in their ear by various teachers from Jerusalem who were possibly Christians. Some of them weren't, some of them were. Because Christians often get caught up in a legalized form of behavior modification. I tell you what the rules are. To give a human example, brethren, no one annuls even a man's will or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. He is going back to Abraham's faith and saying, I'm preserving this because this was a covenant made with Abraham, related to his faith, pointing down to a promise of his son's descendant, Jesus Christ, and it was a link of faith. And Moses, who came 430 years afterward, doesn't get to rewrite the promise, the will that was made. That's why he's bringing up this last will and testament issue. The promise doesn't get to be, once it's ratified, doesn't get to be adjusted. You don't get to go, okay, and we're going to add these rules. No, you don't get to. The promise of faith in Abraham to his heir, Jesus Christ, can't be voided by the other covenant. Interesting thing, well, I shouldn't get off on that. 430 years afterward, that causes a little bit of a problem in your Old Testament dating. It's a great little sector revelation here in Galatians because he's using the Exodus 1240 passage about the time they spent in the land of Egypt was 430 years. That's where the number 430 comes from. But Paul is using it between the promise to Abraham and the law rather than the length of time in Egypt. So, knock yourself out. A little bit of a problem there. You're saying, I don't understand any of this, and you throw that at me? Talk to me afterwards if you're concerned about 430 years. It was really 215 years in the land of Egypt. 
Where was I? Something more important than that. Verse 18. For if the inheritance is by law, it is no longer by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So his way, how you approach your life, are you a descendant of Abraham, a true Jew, in a sense of what God intended through faith, someone who has been changed by your belief in the Son of God, who is living by your belief in the Son of God, or are you somebody who likes the Christian, you know, environment and wants to go find a church that will keep your kids from running amok? And so they have a kind of a reasonably strict youth group where hopefully the youth leader is cool enough to relate to the young and keep your kids off meth. You hope. I, 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 you know, I'm sure Jesus loves them all. But that's not how we do it. That's not what Christianity is about. I choose between a law that would void the promise or the promise. Why then the law? You say, well, what's the, why did that even come up? The natural question, if this was set in motion by Abraham, and he believed God, it was reckoned of his righteousness, he was promised this heir, that is Christ. What, where, Moses, what's, what's going on? I mean, you, can, you look at Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and the thing is just chock full of rules. And some Christians go back there and have a grand old time adjusting their church liturgy or ecclesiastical formation or lifestyle. Some just go to the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We're, we're, yesterday was the Sabbath, by the way. Today is not the Sabbath. Today's Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday. The Seventh-day Adventists are correct. But you might have been raking leaves on the Sabbath. Did you keep it holy? No, you didn't. Do you know in numbers that a guy is stoned to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath? You were doing yard work, and your conscience didn't bother you a bit, now did it? But it was the Sabbath. Some people, they, they want to, some people go, oh, well, then we better, then we start, better start keeping it. Better start remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. Paul is landing on that mind with hobnail boots and saying, what do you think you're doing? You don't even understand why the law came. It was added because of transgressions. Till the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was ordained by angels through an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. There's this sensation that you're always, when you're pushing a, 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 a chasm between the law and grace, when you're pushing a chasm between faith and obedience to the law of Moses, it sounds like you're creating two religions. And if two religions, why not two, you know, did the law come to us through these intermediaries, through a, a dark God? The Gnostics were that mindset. The Gnostics had the belief, the demiurge, which created the physical realm and produced the law of Moses, 
the Demiurge was a uh, 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 the Old Testament God. They were wrong. But these questions naturally come up. Why, why does it exist again? Well, it exists because you're sinners. We choose between law and grace because we choose between kinds of people. The gracious are righteous. Those ungraced are ungodly. When your child is three, they're an ungodly little sack of sin. And the reason you have to have rules in your family is because there is this ungodly little sack of sin wandering the halls of your home, making decisions about where to apply the crayon. And don't tell me that they just were creative. They just wanted to draw. They wanted to draw on your wall. I know this because I have a radiator somewhere in Annapolis, Maryland, metal radiator like these, that is coated in Crayola because I used to sit there and melt them <laughs> on the radiator to just watch the, the wax run down the side of the radiators, all different colors. I was creative. Sin is what it was. Running my own life, saying I could destroy property. When my father said, do not put your, do not touch the side of the house, I just painted it. The hands of, that matched the size of mine when the investigation came. Now why, why were there two handprints in mud on the side of a white house when if he had not said, don't touch the side of the house, there would have been no handprints. My creativity would not have dragged me. I did it because I was sinful. And my rear end was paddled because I had broken the law of the Wilson family. And Jim Wilson, if nothing else, is a man of great grace and great faith when applied to Christians. When applied to Evan Wilson in his minority, unsaved minority, there was law. And that's why the law. Because of sin. Because you exist as a bad person. And when you, this is the insult that you are giving to Jesus Christ. When you say I'm stepping into the law for the grace, for the righteousness of God, where you sound like you're pious, you're actually of the flesh. You're just admitting you, you need someone to run your life. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given which could make alive, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. If, if you could write a rule that could make you good, that's how it would be done. Why would you kill Jesus? They're not about the same subject. You say, is the law against, are you preaching something that says faith is against the, no. Because the law wasn't doing that. The law wasn't designed to do that. It was the law of God. It was the same religion, but it had a different purpose. Certainly not righteousness. And if you think it makes righteous, you're in the wrong religion. There are other religions. Most religions have rules for you to keep. Christianity is not about you keeping the right rules. We discovered through the application of rules, when the law came, it let you know 
You were consigned to sin, verse 22, but the scripture consigned all things to sin that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It was to set you in your place. And that's what's happening anytime you decide law is how you're going to run your spiritual life. You're getting set in your place. You're being said, oh, so you need someone else to decide that you've got to be good and hang enough force over you that you will be good, even though you don't want to be, because you're afraid. Christianity is about changing who you are by faith. Do I believe? Now we're talking to Christians here. Christians could be misinformed. Christians, it's not like saying, oh, but I, I, I kind of do keep the law kind of. You could either be not a Christian, a really confused Christian. But, but you're not what St. Paul believes is the Christian you're supposed to be, which is saved by faith, living by faith. And righteous by faith. Not saved by faith, living by faith, getting away with bloody murder because there are no rules. No. We're being changed to be like Jesus Christ by faith. Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed. This is all one religion. It might have looked like two religions. It might look like there's two ways to God, and Jesus replaced the Old Testament way. Now, the Old Testament way wasn't a way that worked, but it was a way that was in place since faith began way back before the law. The nature of the people of Israel was created, and you had to have a rule. You had to have government. Anytime you have a group of people, you have to have government. We're risking a lot in this church not having any government. 23, 24 years as a church and no government. So far, so good. We can still, you know, blow it badly, but that's risking a lot. Why do we... Minimal government. Why? Because I think I'm dealing with Christians. Because the Lord Jesus Christ changed you all, I trust. And to the degree we would have problems, it's when somebody doesn't act like a Christian. You need to be kept under restraint if you don't have the change. Before faith came, we were confined. If you still accept the law, you're admitting you need to be confined. You need to have someone keep you, a babysitter. That's what it is. So that the law was our custodian until Christ. Remember that moment when mom and dad could leave the home and they're going to go out for a nice dinner and they don't call someone up? Some random half-baked adult to the high school student come over and sit with you? And at a certain point you start to go, couldn't I just do this myself, mother, father? Couldn't I just be in charge? And they say, no, you couldn't. But finally, there was a moment where they said, we're just leaving, don't burn the house down. And you didn't. You were this great moment where you said, I have enough of my human ability to run my own life, my parents think I can run the house for two hours. We felt pleased with ourselves. We get a driver's license, whatever it is you get. Your ability to vote. 
when you stop having a custodian, you know you've arrived at something where you, you have a maturity that's able to do the thing they needed the custodian to do for you. The law is only there for people who need to have... This church has no rules, by the way, other than you've got to occasionally sit up front. And that lack of rules has not devolved into wild uh, dissipation. You have not joined in the profligacy, and I'd say that merely to use the word profligacy, profligacy uh, of the ungodly. Parrots sometimes ask me, well, why wouldn't you have rules? Well, because I want to preach the change of Jesus Christ to people. To the degree you know, say, your kids need rules, as long as you have to still get a babysitter, as long as you have to hold the, the spanking paddle over them and saying, fear, oh fear, the wrath of Father. The longer you have to do that, you're just admitting that your kid is a rotter. You're, you, you, the only fear can constrain them. It says in 1 John, the perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. If you're changed by faith in Jesus Christ, if you're made the loving being that God wants you to be, you run to Christ, you run to the ways of the believer, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which we'll cover in a couple weeks. Love, joy, peace, patience, whatever it is, you're running to these things because I've believed. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. Your faith is supposed to replace the babysitter. Got it? He's warning the Galatians, you've allowed the people to come in and say, you know, you need to be babysat in your life. So let's have the law back in. And he's saying, no, you didn't receive this change of Jesus Christ by works of the law. You shouldn't be living it by works of the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is what supposedly happened. You put on Jesus Christ. You said, okay, I am now the grown-up kid. I could be left at home alone without rules. I remember my 18th birthday. This is back in the Stone Age and my parents gave me the keys to the Galaxy 500, 65 Galaxy 500, named Phil. Ten bucks and a full tank of gas. And I was a man. It was great. You've all had those moments, those transitions, where you knew someone was looking at you and just expecting that you were going to be guided by some element of maturity. In Christ, we have put on that by faith, not by rules. We didn't come up with the putting on Christ involves this and you've got to go do this. It says, do you believe? Have I still believed something else? The problem is not insufficient rules or wise enough rules. Insufficient belief in Jesus Christ. Someone who's still a sinner in a church that, that, that doesn't have rules isn't because of the absence of rules. It's because they have still believed the wrong thing. They still believe in themselves. They still believe that they ought to run their lives. 
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no better than a slave, though he is owner of all the estate. But he's under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us, when we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. He uses the term stoicheion, which is a a Greek concept of of the uh, elemental uh, forces, earth, air, fire, and water. Um, And remember, he's not talking to Jews, or ex-Jews, he's talking to Gentiles, pagans, people that believed in these forces that that guided their lives. He said they weren't Jewish pre-Christians. They were Gentile pre-Christians. All of them were guarded over by some force. For them, the elemental spirits. For the Jews, the law of Moses. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, I don't mean... I'm not an emotional person. I had a little theological fight with Muriel and Diana over grandchildren. Because I don't even think about my grandchildren. There's two of them, I believe. They are better than your grandchildren, by far. They are Wilsons. But, you know, I don't have a lot of emotional grandfatherliness about me. And so some people I've heard over the years that the Abba Father, it's like Papa Father. It's not. It's just the word Father. It says Father twice. But whatever the case, your faith stands before God going, Father, Father. Does your, does your voice, does your heart cry that? Because what you're asking yourself this morning, simple question, not, as, not a question of our ecclesia, not how do we run this church, it's not a run whether this is an odd view or not, it's whether do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you Does your heart cry, Father, Father? Because we know we've been adopted as sons. We've been heirs to the promise of Abraham. We are no longer, and we have gotten mature. In faith, we have found maturity. We have found the Christ, the person to whom the promise was given, the the heir to all that promise was Jesus Christ, and I, in Christ, have put him on. Is there that in you? So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Do we know who our father is? Has our belief set us in a place where we are different people than we were? Or do you still need a babysitter? Just thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful. For your mercies to us, Lord, we still need to grow up in many ways. Lord, help us think on our faith. Think on how much we trust you. Think how much we pursue your word so that we would know what you wish us to hold and believe.
make us full sons, brothers to our Lord, that we would be able to live righteously before you in the way that you would have it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.